Welcome to Beyond the Screen, an Ionis podcast, where we share insights and tips to help you scale your business's online presence. Hosting genuine conversations with the best in the web and IT industry and exploring how the Ionis brand can help professionals and customers with their hosting and cloud issues. I'm your host, Joe Nash. Hello and welcome to this special episode of Beyond the Screen, an Ionis podcast. I'm Joe Nash and I've been your host all season. We're nearing the end of the year and what better time to relive some of the highlights and priceless insights we've had on the show this season. We'll be listening again to our top five episodes as selected by you, the listeners. From handling rubber ducking to the importance of UX in product design, we're covering all the bases. So sit back, grab a cup of your favorite beverage and listen in. It's a countdown. Coming in at number five, we have the episode with Matty Stratton. Matty is the Director of Developer Relations at Ivan, a trusted and leading open source data platform. He shares his insights on the continual learning cycle to keep up with advancements in technology, and I particularly liked his explanation of rubber ducking and how the concept can help you find innovative solutions. There was a point early in my DevRel career where the technology I was dealing with was very different over the course of successive companies. But in every time, my audience, even with those different technologies, was early in career devs. So there was always that strata of, I'm very comfortable with this audience and know who this audience are. Yes, I'm doing a different thing with them, but I have that grounding. So yeah, totally agree. I think that's a really good point. On the topic of learning new things, I know you mentioned that, you know, obviously now Ivan's a slightly different field doing data management, less DevOps stuff. But obviously DevOps is a very fast moving field. And I believe there's a new DevOps now is a thing that I saw that happened. I don't know what's going on with that. Platform, Platform engineering yeah, or something. Something yeah. like that, yeah. <laughs> but in all those transitions, you've also got that fast flowing current going past you the whole time. How do you keep up with continual learning when you're in those roles, especially as someone with the developer relations slot, you need to be at the forefront very frequently. How have you managed that task? I mean, part of it is to realize you can't. Like, it's to sort of start with the, hey, it's a fire hose, you're not going to know everything. One of the things is to be intentional. You know, don't say, hey, I want to learn DevOps. I'm going to learn cloud. That's so many things. Do it in pieces and set realistic expectations as well, which is, this is my problem. I will do this constantly. I find the weirdest edge cases when I want to learn something new. And I'm like, wow, did I make this hard? No, you know what? Go write the to-do app like everybody else does. Do that. Don't try to create some weird setup because I have a weird life, right? You know, I mean, like the problems I'm trying to solve are very strange. And so I want to try to solve those problems because it's helpful to me to try to make it applicable. But then it continually ends up with, I have weird problems to solve. Like, don't go and try to learn this new Go framework by building a common open source tool that all DevRels in the world will use to manage their CFPs. Because that's already a hard problem, right? Go write a to-do app. And a lot of this has to do with everybody's individual preference of how you learn as well. Like, So for me, and as someone who it continually becomes more and more of a generalist, I find what works really well is things where it's not really learning by osmosis. This is why podcasts are helpful to me in certain ways, because podcasts are the thing where you just sort of get the general idea of stuff. You're most likely not going to listen to a podcast and be like, I really understand the right way to frame my unit tests in Rust. That's hands-on stuff or whatever. But if I want to think about how to approach testing in Rust, that's really good for a podcast because it's ideas. And I can do that and I can let it kind of wash over me. And I tend to do that. Repetition is what helps me with those places. The other thing, though, as much as I said, don't try to make it too hard. I don't really understand things until I can get myself an actual real world example to solve. And the trick of that is real world. It doesn't have to be actually serving the very weird problem that Maddie has right now, but even a problem I've had before. 
And how do I connect this to something as a sysadmin? I would have had to kind of reconfigure my IP tables. That's a problem I understand that people have. Okay, so I'll try to accomplish to that versus if it might be like, well, how do I do sharding in this? I'm like, I haven't had to do that before, so I don't even understand it. So it doesn't help me. So I think part of it is set realistic expectations for yourself, connect to your way of learning. These sort of learning styles have been a little bit disproven, I think, about like some people, but but learning preferences is a very real thing. You have a preference of how you work and what you want. So having awareness of that, like I am not necessarily a follow videos kind of person. It just doesn't help me as much, but I like to read books. But some people hate to read books and some people want to see videos, which is why in DevRel, we create content across all kinds of platforms because everybody has preferences. And then one of the biggest things as well is if you can, and this is the hard one, is a mentor and a coach helps like someone who can help you, but you be judicious with how you do that, right? Unless you're paying somebody, they're not your tutor. They're not there to hand walk you. But if you're like, hey, I'm just stuck. Can you just like rubber duck with me? Can you kick this around? And that can be either someone who's a big expert in it or a fellow learner who's in the same part of the journey. This is one of the things that, to be quite frank, as we look at all the things that suck about Twitter burning down, boy, was that a helpful thing. I learned so much from having the ability to just throw a question out there. You get people ranging from who the heck knows this person is that's got six followers doing whatever or charity majors weighing in. And you're like, wow, I can learn a lot from those things. And it's a lot harder now, but you still leverage your network. And fellow learners, like get a study buddy, someone who's trying to learn the similar thing. For folks who aren't aware of the term rubber ducking, that's when you ask someone a question and in the act of asking the question and forming that thought, you solve the question yourself. So the asking, as you said, is like more important than the other person necessarily knowing. Just being able to frame that to someone is super helpful. I've seen people do that even with blogs, right? Sometimes if I just write a blog post to try to figure the problem out, by the time I'm done writing the post, I figured it out because I had to write it down. Number four is Rand Sangera, who is the head of sustainability at Ionos, a digital partner for cloud solutions and web hosting. Rand did a fantastic job of looking at sustainability through a climate neutral lens and explaining how sustainability is driving long-term value with the planet, people, and profit. Okay, so I want to dig into a couple of things there just for folks who you know haven't encountered a lot of the challenges of working with offsets or climate neutrality. So you mentioned you know that you don't want to use the word climate neutral and you mentioned trusted offsets. Like why are both those disclaimers? Yeah, this comes back to the kind of preconceptions question. And my feeling is that customers can get bamboozled with the amount of you know terms that are out there. Yeah. To the point where even I won't lie, even I'm still bamboozled, you know, sure. by them. I'm like, you know climate neutral, carbon positive, carbon negative, net zero, (laughs) science-based targets initiative, you know. (laughs) So if I'm bamboozled, imagine like, you know, how our customers think. So for me, a company can make the broad claim and say, hey man, we're climate neutral. Throw some pictures of the trees on their website. Everything's great. But for me, it's like, how do you achieve that climate neutral claim? Is it because you purchase some low quality, really cheap carbon offsets somewhere and that allows you to make that claim and mislead your customer? So that's why I avoid using that term to be much clearer about, look, this is how we avoid carbon through you know, renewable electricity, through reusing and refurbishing IT servers. And this is where we offset as a last step particularly with trusted projects, because it's growing kind of exponentially uh, all of these different carbon offset projects, lots of different companies springing up in lots of different parts of the world. 
And I think if you Google it and look in the news, there's a lot of like criticism that's being directed that maybe that these projects don't work. They haven't been properly evaluated. Maybe they're even actually causing environmental damage. So I think that's where there's a big responsibility on companies to not say, we just want to offset. So where's the cheapest, quickest provider that we can find? It's more about a quality provider that's gone through some kind of evaluation so, you know, Iono specifically, we don't publicize the offsets or the projects that we support because we want to put more focus on the carbon reduction and avoidance and energy efficiency initiatives. But yeah, we've evaluated a list of suppliers and the projects and we're like, okay, we want to support these ones because they seem good. They seem to be doing the thing they say they are doing, which... Exactly, yeah. We had a new uh, data center come online in Worcester, UK in October of last year. And I think for us going forward, it's really setting the blueprint of how we will move forward with environmental sustainability. Firstly, it's going to be one of our most energy efficient data centers. I mentioned that the carbon emissions from diesel backup generators, we're actually going to have biofuel powered generators, which will help us to reduce the carbon emissions from diesel by 90%. The steel that was used in its construction was carbon offset with trusted suppliers. And for the very first time, we also actually integrated uh, biodiversity aspects into it. And that was a key consideration. So B and Bug Hotels to support, you know, the local biodiversity, in addition to all of the other 100% renewable electricity. Yeah, no, I mean, so big topic, we can jump around and I'm going to make you do it right now. So we spoke, lots of people think just climate and they think CO2 and they think global warming. Biodiversity is obviously a hugely important part of sustainability and is, in fact, you know, why a lot of that is important. Can you briefly explain to folks like what you mean when you say biodiversity and why you're interested in preserving it? Yeah. So in terms of our business sector, biodiversity isn't the biggest environmental priority. It's like, you know, climate change, energy, circular economy. But we have sites, you know, and we can support the local biodiversity within those regions. So what I mean by biodiversity is Flora and fauna, insects, plants, you know, local wildlife, what simple measures or installations can we put in place that could just very easily support local biodiversity? So there's not just Ionos, but there's also other data center operators that have that in mind. And yeah. the primary one is that we can support increased insect populations by just having bee, bug, insect hotels on site. It's a low cost, you know, measure that can have a big impact. Yeah, that's a hugely important one, especially for the UK, which has seen some quite precipitous insect number drops. I'm very excited to hear that. Okay, awesome. So I want to give you space to mention some of the other aspects. I think I shoehorned you a bit there into the environmental challenges specifically. You did also mention you work with the AFB, but I think one area which was new to me from your introduction that I hadn't appreciated a whole bunch was the employee engagement aspect. I guess what we were saying about consumers and their exposure to the data centers must to a certain extent be true for employees of owners as well. Like obviously, I don't know whether the vast majority the company is going into these day on day like how does this thread follow through to your employees and the employee engagement piece we have a really strong focus on diversity and inclusion i am like and it's so important for the people who work here we're a very like you know diverse company we have more than 60 different nationalities that work i on us and you yeah, know starting with the data you know first to show like how we've improved over the last year so since about 2018 i think in 2018, we had 45 nationalities, and today we've got more than 60. In terms of gender diversity, I think in 2018, we had about 18.5% women in management, and today it's more than 24%. So still not perfect, you know, there's still a long way to go, but, you know, it's slowly moving in the right direction. For sure. 
Jeff comes in at number three. Jeff Johnson is the lead UX designer at Alata, a custom solution provider for automating business processes. If you've been looking for an episode which breaks down the crux of what UX design is, this is the one. Jeff spoke in detail on how UX design is just as much about making easy-to-use products as it is about driving sales and profitability for the business. This lesson in. Well, now I'm going to put you on the spot and absolutely curse you with making sure that future UX designers who get hired by bosses have a boss that feels that way and understands it. So if you're listening to this, bosses, could you help our audience understand how you see the importance of UX and how you see it acting as the lifeblood of digital products? Can you get them that perspective that your bosses apparently have? Yeah, yeah. So I think a big part of it is the shift in technology now. Almost all products were using like a library or we're using like pre-made components and a lot of the development is already pre-made. There's so many resources for architecture. And I think where companies are seeing the most value added is adding a feature or changing the UX flow or changing the way people interact with the product or just saving people time like Amazon. Their Prime app has changed the world. I literally don't need to go out anymore. I can literally just press my button. I never need to think to the future, have things in my house. They'll be there when I need them. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a developer or somebody on the more technical side would have said like, hey, let's make this app better or let's change the code or let's do something technical with it. But I think a UX person would come and say, hey, can we save time in this person's day? And that adds business value that increases revenue. And so, I mean, money talks. I think UX is starting to evolve where it's less about making things look good and feel good. And it's more about saving businesses money and saving customers time. And that's a big part of UX now. Yeah, absolutely. Looking to e-commerce and time in particular, I think is a very effective one because we hear nonstop in the e-commerce space about checkout abandonment and what small percentage of customers actually make it all the way through checkout. And so like a lot of that is friction. If you're carving that time off, you're really helping with that. That very bottom line affecting problem. Yeah. There's a company called Baymart Institute, the Baymart Institute, and they take like the top, I think, 200 something e-commerce sites in North America in terms of like revenue and they had researched the crap out of it. Everything from like how many people are abandoning checkout when you don't have to log in or when you have to log in, how should a credit card field be styled, literally like the most detailed things and they do like an amazing job. I'm also certified by them. So I'm also sh- shouting at myself. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Shameless plug. That sounds like a cool certification though. That's a nice program to be running. Yeah. There's only like 280 people in the world that have the certification. But if anybody's listening and they're UXer, like definitely go check them out and look into their certification because they're doing amazing work. I worked in payments very briefly, but I feel like if you're going to pick like any one industry to go and see UX at work, just looking at a credit card form on a bunch of websites is like a great example of like, hey, this sees some UX touches like heavy lifting, especially if you look over time. So we might have just completely sniped this, but my next question was going to be, we spoke about the importance of UX. What are the risks of not thinking about UX first or putting UX as an afterthought? Like what are some of the pitfalls that companies can fall into? I've seen a lot of products work without proper UX done. So it's not like if you don't have a UX designer, your product is doomed to fail. But I feel like even though it might not fail, it can get so much better if you involve a UX person from the beginning. And it may not be not having UX or having UX. It's like when you involve UX. Like a maturation step. Yeah. So a lot of people, or traditionally, I think they would have the business folks do the research of what we're trying to do, or the product owner would try to figure out what we're trying to solve. And then when it's time to, again, do the aesthetics or make a visually appealing interface, they bring in the UX designer to try to solve that. But I think 
the shift that we're seeing is UX designers are brought in right at the beginning to ask stakeholders and users questions right at the beginning. And that I think is adding value. So I think it's more about the risk of not having UX at every phase of the project. Yeah. And I guess lots of people have had the experience of coming into a project after a lot of the decisions are set in stone and, you know, some bad decisions are locked in. And I can really easily see how that would be very limiting in terms of the UX changes that you can make and the scope of improvements you can make. So yeah, I definitely understand bringing people in earlier. So one of the things you mentioned there was, you know, there's a shift in UX and you're starting to see these changes. So obviously some positive people come into UX, like UX designers coming into projects at better times. Are the changing times bring any challenges? Like what are the biggest challenges you face in creating impactful UX design? Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges we're seeing in UX is expecting UX people to know all the different UX roles. So now there's like a UX researcher, UX strategist, and then there's a person that we traditionally think of who just like make the UI better. There's like C-suite level people that are just chief product officers. And I think partly because of social media and all the posts that we see on LinkedIn about, you got to do this, you got to learn this, you got to update your portfolio to this. I think designers might be trying to get overwhelmed and stretching themselves thin to be like a master of everything in UX. Of course, full stack development all over again. Yeah. And then some companies expect you know how to code too. So we're like supposed to be developers and UX designers and researchers and strategists and business consultants. So it's good to know like a little bit of everything. But I think maybe the challenge for designers is finding a place where you feel like your specific skill set is valued and they don't expect you to know everything. I speak with a lot of tech nerds on this show, but not very many who are also rappers. So the episode with Ada Alonso Iglesias is understandably memorable, taking the number two spot. Ada is a rapper and DevOps engineer at Voxel51. Ada is incredibly talented and has used her skills to carve out a career that has seen her become a renowned rapper, radio producer, TEDx speaker, TV show collaborator, and volunteer for multiple artistic causes. Ada spoke to us about the importance of cybersecurity in the tech world. You mentioned a couple of areas there that I guess pose particular difficulties to companies, like obviously having a cybersecurity, knowing that your platform is secure and having a response ready for that. Uh, what are some of the other major challenges that you think organizations face in, in building trust? There's two. One is I've worked for startups mostly, so not having enough people to take care of everything, right. so not having test automation yeah. or not having observability, not having monitoring, not having incident response. Not having a cybersecurity engineer, that happens almost all the time. So I'd say mostly that I think for bigger companies, most likely it's maybe lack of process or just having things too stuck on the same place and have to write too many papers in order to do something instead of just do it. I think there is also one thing that I, I'll probably mention it later too, but yeah. it's that this is a, a little bit more of a general overview, but I think most the engineers and most professionals nowadays society are very specialized. So test automation engineer only knows about test automation engineering, cybersecurity engineer, people that know about a lot of things, but there's a lot of specialization. So with cybersecurity, especially, I think it's important that everybody knows about cybersecurity as well as automation. Everybody should know about test automation because the person that is writing a new feature is breaking the test as well. So I think everybody should know about a little bit about everything. And if something is not happening, that's breaking the process. I see that's creating a lot of struggle through the way. Right. So everyone needs that foundational layer of at least enough to understand the context and the requirements of what's happening. And then they have their specialisms, but they still need to understand, you know, what the person next to them is doing, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And have consideration about it. 
<laughs> yeah, every engineer having some consideration of security issues would be very nice. <laughs> um, absolutely. Well, we, we should all have, like, individually as an engineer, is one of us should be, it's our, our duty to try to be able to be proficient on a little bit of everything that is involved with security. Right, right. I think, I can't remember who said it, but I someone at some point said this thing to me, which was like, you don't necessarily have to like know how to secure this application in a particular way, but you should recognize what you don't know how to secure and ask the person who does know, right? Like you should be able to say like, hey, I don't know if this is, I don't know how to secure this. Put my hand up and say, can someone make sure this is secure rather than just saying, oh, it's fine and moving on. Yeah. The, the problem is that we know, but we never know what we don't know. And that goes for known knowns and unknown, unknown unknowns and yeah, whatever the famous quote is. So obviously you mentioned there one thing, which is is resourcing. Resourcing is a problem with a pretty clear solution, which is hire people. But what are some other practical steps that you think organizations can take to solve these problems and to build their digital trust? Training. Yeah, I think a way to break the gap between this hardcore specialization with the software engineers focus on the code and just this part of code will work and everything else doesn't matter because the study will take care of it. I think that could be cured by doing some training and maybe rewarding people for knowing things. Uh, right. And I, I mean, yeah, there's nobody want to learn something that is not in their job description anyways. Well, but yeah, so I think training and also doing some cross disciplinary work sometimes and do fun things too, because I think you no know, hackathons and those yeah. kind of things are and capture the flags for security and yeah. Yeah, they're very helpful to you know get together and work in a project that is fun. And there is no better way to learn than have fun. But I don't know how much I stress that, but there's no better way to learn than have fun. And when you have fun, you work better and everything just goes good. Yeah, yeah. Do you have an example of like somewhere you've worked that's done this really well? I think no place have done it perfect. I think <laughs> it doesn't exist yeah. as well. But I think all the startups I work at, they're pretty similar mm -hmm. on, you know, trying to figure out this process. I like working in startups because because of this. But I think startups are also very busy constantly and they don't have time to figure out. They kind of put away things that are not released, whatever the customer is asking for now, because if we don't have this, we, we don't have the money. And then we just, no, we're not here. <laughs> we all lose our job. So that desperation situation, I think is, is really good to speed things up. But I think it's, it's bad in the part that things are considered not as important. That is usually, you know, test automation and, and observability. Those are put away sometimes. In the number one spot, the most listened to episode of the season, we have Cameron Miller, who is the lead visual designer, UX operations at Avid. Cameron took us on a journey to explore how user experience can engage and retain users and how to leverage user behavior to design better products. So this idea that customer and user attention spans are increasingly shortening, that everyone wants to spend less and less time engaging with it and you need to work harder and harder to keep that engagement up. Can you share a little bit about your thoughts on how a well-crafted user experience moves beyond just improving the functionality to something that will engage and retain users? Definitely. So well-crafted, user-centric products will facilitate valuable experiences for the people that are interacting with them, right? So what I mean by this is that people will derive value from interacting with the product. Your product isn't going to give 
value. Value is something that the user derives from your product. And it's a key component of any product that's going to genuinely like captivate users and have them coming back for more. If you get value from something, you're going to use it time and again. So while I was studying very early on in my career, I was presented with this graphic. It's called the UX Honeycomb, User Experience Honeycomb. Very popular graphic in the field. It was created by Peter Morville, who's been working in user experience design and information architecture since the 90s. And essentially what this graphic illustrates is that value, which is at the core of the honeycomb, is reliant on six other facets. And according to this, a system that delivers value to its end users is going to be number one, useful. It's going to provide some sort of utility to the person. It's going to be desirable. People will want to use it. The system and the information within it will be accessible to the users. If it's not accessible, you can't get value from it. The information needs to be credible. People need to trust the system that is giving them the right information. And creates that made difficult. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So we need to trust the system in order for you to derive value from it. The information needs to be findable as well. If you can't find it, you can't get value from it. And then lastly, but very importantly, it needs to be usable. It needs to be easy to use. So being useful is different than being usable, but it needs to be both. So in order to nail down all of these things that generate value, you got to practice UX research. You have to let your users inform those things so you make the right decisions on how to approach each of those aspects. And I see that this sort of philosophy of value and the things that drive value is definitely at the bedrock of my practice. And it is something that I think is crucial to creating products that will keep people coming back for more because they're getting value. And at the end of the day, we want to create products that help people. So that's where I'm at with that one. So, you know, we're talking about these tools that you as designers have access to to shape user behavior. We've been talking about the importance of engagement and creating engaging experiences. I guess another piece of discourse we're hearing about this world is like, you know, the ethical considerations of engagement, right? You know, we're creating these experiences that are engaging slash could be termed addictive and where that's appropriate, what's appropriate to do it in. Can you talk a little bit about the ethical dimensions of your work? You know, like what you think about when you're designing for impact, when you're thinking about, you know, what is user engagement slash what is manipulation or even to go as far as exploitation and how that plays into things. Oh, goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's this term in the field of UX that any UX practitioner, I think, is sensitive to or at least aware of, and that is called dark UX. And it's just these gross things that people do to try to manipulate users to complete an action, either unknowingly by mistake or manipulate them into making them think twice about the decision that they're making. They're all oh, maybe I don't want to be, you know, some loser. So I guess I will, you know, subscribe to your service for $5 a month. Like you need to be very sensitive to that and really have the user's best interest in mind throughout our design process. So you need to be practicing some ethical UX throughout the whole deal. And again, that's going to come back to this concept of value. Are we really designing things that people are going to derive value from? Or if the perception here is that I'm working at an organization and I just want to get value from... Yeah, numbers must go up, right? Right. We need to be helping them solve problems. We need to be helping them perform a task, making their lives easier, reducing their cognitive load for whatever they're sort of doing. I mean, having their best interest in mind should always be key. And I think it's really apparent when it's not. And I hope that folks are averse to designing in that way. 
Yeah, I feel like awareness at large, like outside of the tech industry is spreading, particularly thanks like, you know, you mentioned being tripped in subscribing for things. I think like that and the newsletter subscription auto ticked on kind of stuff, right? Like it has spread awareness of these patterns at large. I think dark patterns is a very familiar term to people. When it comes to avoiding those, are there things like, I imagine there must be, but are there things like ethical standards that designers can refer to or like pull up if they want to check that aside from their gut feeling that like, you know, there's a checklist I can look at. Is there anything like that? You know what? There likely is. There likely are lists. I don't have anything coming to the top of my head. I just kind of know it when I see it and I've had like piecemeal exposures to it. But I mean, I'm very vocal if if anything ever would arise as some sort of business requirement that if anything like that is pitched, I try to shut it down as soon as, as possible. So no, that's not best practice. We don't do it like that. We hope you enjoyed reliving these highlights as much as I did. Thank you for sticking with us through the season. We appreciate every single one of you who has ever hit play. On behalf of the entire Ionis family, we wish you and your near and dear a happy, healthy and prosperous 2024. See you next year with an all new guest list and tips to ramp up your business's online presence and e-commerce. Till then, stay happy and safe.